We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. And on this, uh, on this warm July day, hey, welcome to July, everybody. July number one. Um, it is easy to be distracted from His Word. So let's pray for God's grace as we read His Word, hear His Word. And since it's warm, like Brian Sessions always says before he preaches, I won't be before you long, just before he goes on for an hour and 15 minutes. I won't be before you long. Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29. We're getting into some exciting stuff here in the book of Jeremiah. I want to read the first 14 verses of this chapter. The chapter is entitled, in many of your translations, A Letter to the Exiles. A letter to the exiles, which gives you some context. I want to preach this chapter under the heading, God is not done. God is not done. Verse 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests. The, people, the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Father, we ask that as we come into this passage that you will wake us up physically so that we might stay awake and hear your word right now. But God, if you don't wake us up spiritually, if you don't stir in us what needs to be stirred, if you don't convict our hearts, we're hopeless. We've experienced that already in our own conversion, and God, I pray that we will continue to experience your grace in ministering to our hearts. Change us, O oh God, from the inside out. I pray that we will see the hope that we have in your promises, in your faithfulness this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Florence, Italy, there's a statue which was never finished. It was made by Michelangelo, and it's of St. Matthew. Now, Michelangelo, the way he approached his sculptures was he believed that the statue was inside of this big block of stone. And his job as a sculptor was to sort of free the statue from the stone. Well, in the case of poor old Matthew, he was never fully freed. If you were to see this in a museum, you, what you would see is that the first half of his body is visible, and he's coming out of the stone, but he is forever frozen in place in that stone because Michelangelo, the artist, never finished his work. Unlike Michelangelo, we have an artist who is working in us who will finish the work. There is nobody who gets halfway freed from the exile that we know, from the slavery that we know, from the brokenness that we know, from the guilt that we know, from the sin that we know, but never fully freed. I am here to tell you God is going to finish the work that He has started in your life. We get this from verse 11 right here. I'll read it to you again. He says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Do you ever feel that God has abandoned you? I wonder if you ever feel that because of your own sin that you've committed, because of the problems that you've brought into your life, because of the guilt of things from the past, that in some sense, like, you wouldn't necessarily admit this to a 
friend because that goes against your theology, but in some sense you live day to day just kind of feeling like you've been abandoned by God. As if God's like a human, like, like me for instance. And I warn you about something and, and you continue to do that something and then at some point I just throw my hands up and I say, okay, I'm done. You guys ever been there? We've had, maybe parents have had that response toward you or friends or mentors. Do you realize if you're in Christ that we don't serve a God who will ever throw up his hands and say, I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm done, I'm done with Carter. I'm done with Montreal. I'm done with Kay. I'm done with, I'm done with y'all. <laughs> God is not finished and he's not done. Now this is the challenge that's before Jeremiah as he writes this letter to exiles. How do exiles, whose past has been pretty bad, whose present looks pretty bleak, how do you encourage these people to live? How do you encourage them at all? How do you encourage Christians whose past has been bad and whose present looks pretty bleak? Now, we know according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that we have in Christ every spiritual blessing. Everybody say the word spiritual. Spiritual. That's very important to distinguish because what that tells us is that we don't have every physical blessing, do we? We do have every spiritual blessing. Think about this. If you are in Christ, there is not a spiritual blessing that you already don't have. You've got it all in Christ right now. However, it says spiritual, not physical. The reality is, is we don't have every physical blessing right now, and we won't until that day when we die or we're given new bodies in the recreated earth and Jesus Christ comes and meets us and lives with us. In that day, we will have every spiritual blessing and we will have every physical blessing. But how do you encourage exiles living today with every spiritual blessing but who are not experiencing Every physical blessing, meaning we live in a world of blood, of problems, of suffering, of pain, of challenges, of guilt. You know, a lot of the problems we have in our life are stuff that we brought on ourselves. Well, this is Jeremiah's challenge as he picks up pen and paper and writes this letter. Or quill and parchment or whatever he used. as he writes this letter to the exiles. Now, briefly remember, Jeremiah had been preaching for many years. Repent, or God's judgment is coming in the way of Babylon. Babylon is coming. We are going to go as exiles to the northern kingdom. Well, they did not repent, and as a result, Babylon came. The first wave of attack came in the year 597 as King Jedekiah and the 10,000 elite of, 
of uh, Judah surrendered and went to Babylon. This includes, by the way, a young man named Daniel who went to Babylon along with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who went to Babylon and who served there. The, the brightest and the best surrendered and they went. Now, word has come along from the false prophets, as we talked about last week, giving false assurance, saying, hey, everything's going to be okay. Don't worry about building a house in Babylon. Don't worry about settling down in Babylon. Definitely don't worry about trying to do good for Babylon because you're coming home. Last week we saw that they said they're going to come home how quickly? Two years. You guys were listening. Well done. Problem is, that was false. And so Jeremiah writes this letter now, not only correcting the false prophets who gave false assurance, but Jeremiah writes this letter to these exiles, encouraging them. How do we live? What does life now look like? As we get into it first, he says, settle down, number one. Settle down. Settle down in Babylon. You're going to be there for a while. A couple years ago, a man named Harold Camping was on the radio. You know, somebody knows. <laughs> somebody remembers Harold Camping. He was on the radio every night. I would listen to it. It was so amusing and so discouraging simultaneously. You know how that can be. Harold Camping was predicting that the rapture, which is this idea that, that one day Christians will disappear and that will bring about the ending of times, he was teaching that the rapture was going to come on May 21st, 2011. He had a lot of people following him. A lot of people. On May 22nd, 2011, some of his followers were interviewed. And it was devastating. I mean, truly, I was reading these interviews just this past week, and I was actually moved a little bit. I felt bad for these people. One guy spent $140,000, older retired man, $140,000, all of his life savings, on posters to try to convert people so that they would be saved on that day. Uh, an, another person racked up their credit cards. I don't feel bad for this person. <laughs> racked up their credit cards. They've got bills that were never paid. And these people are in tears. They don't know what happened. The credit card person, they actually said, with everything that I've got to face now, the rapture would have been pretty convenient. <laughs> Listen, this is, this is similar to what's going on in a sense. Like you get false prophets coming along and they're saying, hey, don't settle this. You're not going to be here long. This, you're just passing through and we're going to get out of here soon. So don't invest too much into this world at all. You know what I'm saying? And there's a sense of disconnect from the world, from reality, quitting jobs, not taking care of things, not paying bills, because it's all going to be okay very, very soon. 
And in similar ways, you got Christians of all stripes who live like that today. Maybe not quite as blatant, but sort of this removal from the world, this disconnect from this world. Sort of a, a sense of fear of anything that comes across as quote-unquote worldly. I'm not going to do that because that's sort of worldly. I'm not going to watch that game or I'm not going to uh, let my kid do this or go to that school because that's, that's too worldly. We're, we're disconnecting ourselves from the world and we're essentially kind of building a barrier and hunkering down just waiting for Jesus to come back. Well, is that how exiles ought to live? Look at, look at how Jeremiah encourages the exiles in Babylon, verse 5. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Number one, Jeremiah is saying it's going to be a while. Notice he just threw three generations into that mix. Like, it ain't going to be two years. He's saying, first, I think that's the main point here. It's going to be a while. It's going to be a long time while you're living as servants in Babylon. Secondly, he's also telling the Israelites that the Abrahamic call is still on. You see what I'm saying? We've got to rewind the track. Let's go all the way back to Abraham. God gives Abraham a son, and what's the call for Israel? It's to have children, to be fruitful, multiply, right? Because God is building for himself a people. He's building for himself a great nation. And that Abrahamic call was on them in, in Egypt, way back in their this, this initial exile, this slavery in Egypt, when they were to grow and multiply as a people. And then in Israel, they are to grow and to multiply in, in, in Israel. And now they are in Babylon. And while in Babylon, they are to do what? They are to continue growing and multiplying. Why? It's because God is not through with this people. God is sustaining for himself and even continuing to build a remnant of people who are inheritors of the promise. Why? Because God made a covenant with them, with their father Abraham, and that covenant is signed and sealed and it's not going anywhere. The point is, is live your lives in Babylon. That's the point. Live. There's something to be said of contentment with where, where God has you in life. I would imagine in a sense that some of these exiles would find it very hard to be content. Especially knowing that they could have repented and stayed in the land. What we have now in Babylon, it's not what could have been. It's hard to be content when you're living in your own mess, isn't it? And for some of you, it is hard to be content when you're living in your own mess. 
For some of us, if we're honest, we'll say, you know, I'm not where I could have been. If I would have gone this way instead of that way, I could have been in a different place spiritually. I could have been better off. I could have made better decisions in life. I've got brokenness in my pathway. As I look back on my life, I've burned bridges with people. I've ruined relationships. I got my mom's not even talking to me anymore. I got issues with my brother. I got friends that I used to be so close with, and I, it's awkward to talk to. Like, I've burned, like, I, I live in this mess. It's hard to be content when you're living in your own mess, isn't it? I feel like I'm only talking to two or three people right now. Is it hard to live in your own mess? Absolutely it is. Is God sovereign over our mess? <laughs> Check this out. He tell, they, they're living in their mess, and he says, settle down in this. Like, don't think that I'm out of control right now. Don't think that I don't have you right now in the very place I want you to be. Don't think that my purposes are failing at this point, point in your life. I want you to settle down where you're at and be content with where God has you in life. There's a difference at the same time between assimilation and incarnation. And I want to take a moment and just make this clear. Jesus incarnated himself into the world as he came and lived among us. Meaning when Jesus was among us, he was truly among us. He wasn't distant. He didn't just kind of hunker down with his 12 and disconnect from society. But he engaged the darkest parts of society, and he lived there. Yet, check this out, Jesus did not assimilate into the world. And what I mean by that, the way I'm using that word, is he didn't become part of the sinful structure of society. You see, I see Christians on both sides. On one hand, I see, like I've already said, I see some Christians who are kind of on this side of distance, and they refuse to interact with the world. They refuse to participate with the world. On the same token, though, I see Christians who just assimilate into the world. And they say, well, I'm in Babylon, so when in Babylon, do as the Babylonians. Worship their gods. Eat their... I mean, we still got Yahweh. We still have our God. We still have our faith, but... But let's just be part of what's going on. Let's just be part of, essentially, now nobody puts it this way, but the sinful structures of the world. I, actually, Daniel, who I've already mentioned, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, read about them in Daniel, the book of Daniel. Great examples of, of being in but not of. So Daniel and his three friends are among the brightest. And they're, they're in the courtyard of the king. Daniel gets in trouble for praying three times a day, doesn't he? Yet at the same time, he's uber successful in the kingdom of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They get in trouble for not bowing down to the gods of Babylon. 
Yet at the same time, these people are contributing to society. They're living among, they're, they're serving Babylon in a way that is remarkable, in a way that catches the eyes of the Babylonians. Like, the Israelites are the best and brightest among them. Yet at the same time, they refuse to assimilate into their culture. I love the letter to Diognetus. I, I reference it once every year or two. It's an ancient letter written by somebody to somebody named Diognetus, and they're explaining who these Christians are. And in this explanation, one of the lines, one of the things the author says is that they are people who live everywhere. Like, they're, they're not just confined to one locale. And they're of all kinds of people, meaning they're not just one family or race. And they live in the world, yet they are peculiar, they're distinct, and they're not of the world. Now, this leads us to what we see in verse 7. Not only are they to settle down and participate in society, but they are to, verse 7, seek the peace or the shalom of Babylon, the society in which they've been put. Look at verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now this would have been shocking for the Israelites. It's one thing, Jeremiah, to tell us to settle down. It's one thing to tell us to build houses, work jobs, and have kids. It would have been shocking to hear Jeremiah say to pray to Yahweh. I believe it would have been shocking that they can actually pray to Yahweh when they're in Babylon, away from the temple. The temple's destroyed very soon. Even more, how shocking it is that they're called to pray for Babylon, not just for Israel. In Psalm 121, by the way, they are called to pray to Israel, for Israel. I think that would continue. They're still using the Psalms in their worship. But that same language now is applied to Babylon. He says, pray for the welfare of Babylon. Now, that word, the word welfare is the Hebrew word shalom, which is a word that many of you would be familiar with. Shalom is often translated peace or prosperity. Shalom certainly means peace, but shalom means much more than peace. It means peace in every aspect of life, essentially. Shalom means wholeness. It means that you're working a job, but you're not overworked. It means that you've got the money that you've earned. It means that every hungry belly is filled. It means that there is truth in the land. It means that trash is picked up and put away and where it's supposed to go. It means that there are laws and policies that are in place in the land which 
or for the well-being of all people, the poor, the middle class, and the rich. All people thrive together, and we're seeing every need met in a land of shalom. Thus, there would actually be no poor if there was complete shalom. Everybody has a home. Children have parents that love them, that teach them the way of God. Now, you can understand why the Israelite might say, hey, I know we're supposed to pray for the shalom of Israel, but Babylon? We're, we're to pray to Yahweh, the God of Israel, for Babylon, the enemy that just came in and swept us away and now taken us into exile, and here we are serving them, and they're throwing us to the lion's den, and they're throwing us into the fiery furnaces, and you're telling us to pray for the shalom of Babylon. Well, what is he telling them? What he's saying is this, is my rule and reign is global. It's not just about Israel, but wherever my people go, my rule and my reign goes. Because what we see fully in the New Testament is that the kingdom of God is within you. And as we go, as they go into Babylon, they are agents of shalom in Babylon. Now let me just briefly pause for a moment. Baltimore would not necessarily be described by the average newscaster as a city of shalom. A lot of times words such as broken are used to describe Baltimore, or addicted, or divided. I was at a wedding yesterday and somebody asked me, is, is Baltimore really as violent as they say? Well, I'm alive. Listen, here we are, as strangers and exiles, the Bible says, in a foreign land. Here we are, living in a city. We are redeemed people in an unredeemed world. We are inheritors of all of the blessings and all of the things and all of the goodness that is God's in Christ they are ours, and we're living as strangers in a broken world. Here we are as aliens, as foreigners, as peculiar people in a strange world. Well, what does this mean? It means that we too are to be people of peace in the society which God has placed us. It means that we are to settle into the world that God has placed us in, and in this place we are to be people of shalom, and we are to seek the shalom of our neighbors and the city and the people around us, and we are to even pray for the shalom of our city in which we find ourselves. This means that we are to participate in 
Baltimore. This means that we are to not just work a job, but work really hard at your job. It means that where you're where you're at, where you find your, you might not even like your job. How many of you don't like your job? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> All right, a couple of us. Not me. I love my job. Keep my hand down. It's great. Uh, but you might not like your job. Um, yet, yet you're called to seek the wholeness of that place. Like our places of where we work ought to actually be better because we are there as people of the kingdom working. I don't care what you do. If you're mopping floors, yeah, that ought to be the, 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 the cleanest floor. Like You can just eat off of this thing. There's no corners that you're missing. Why? It's because you're a representative of the kingdom of God, and you are here seeking the shalom of the city in which you live. You've got neighbors. Your neighbors' lives ought to have increased value because they live next to you. There should be a sense in which our, our blocks, I'm not saying that we are the hero, I'm not saying that we're the hope, but there's a sense in which our presence ought to bring some shalom to the block. Like, I do believe that there, there will be nothing better for the Upton neighborhood than to have 30 people in the Upton neighborhood be converted, come to Christ, and be living as agents of the kingdom, people of shalom in Baltimore. We demonstrate godly marriages. We demonstrate godly singleness to the world around us. Now, let me say something here at this point. Is this our mission? No. Don't confuse this. This has been wildly mispreached, as if the mission of God is for you to make Baltimore a better place. That's not the Christian mission. Our mission isn't to go paint a, a, a fence somewhere. Our mission isn't just simply to set up a, a clothing closet and a, and a food pantry. Our mission isn't just simply to move in to a neighborhood and, and be present on the block and do cool things and make it. That's not the Christian mission. The, are you, are you track, that's not the mission of the church. But it's who we are. You see, you see what I'm saying? This is just who we are. We're people of God. We're people of shalom. And so where we are, the Bible calls it salt and light. We're hands and feet of Christ. People see Christ in the way that we exist and love. So we ought to not just simply live in Baltimore, but we should love Baltimore. And we shouldn't just simply love Baltimore, but we should pray for Baltimore. Now, question. How do we seek shalom? How do we, how can we even talk about this when we feel so little shalom in our own life? Like, I don't want to preach law to you guys this morning. I don't want you going out of here thinking like, all right, my job is to roll up my sleeves and make shalom happen in Baltimore. No, it ain't. <laughs> That's not your job. How can we be people who seek shalom in a world of brokenness? How can we be people who pursue wholeness and peace where there's such violence when we feel a lack of shalom in our own life? 
what I want to do this morning is preach the gospel to you. What I see here is not just law, but good news that's rooted in the promises and the faithfulness of God for His people. Meaning like, okay, so we settle. Yes, got it. We seek shalom. Okay, got it. But for what cause? For, for what purpose? Like, what is our motivation if Babylon is all there will ever be? If Israel is lost? If the covenant is forever broken? God's not done. What we see here is God gives them motivation. He gives them another perspective. He wants them to live, not only settling down and seeking shalom, but live as if God is not done. Look at the fuel he gives them in verse 10. In verse 10 he says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Pause. I've got to throw this in really quick. Can we just pause for a second? As they're seeking shalom, are they trying to usher the kingdom of God into Babylon? No. It actually says right there, Babylon's going to be destroyed. Their time is coming to an end. My concern with a lot of shalom seekers is this belief that this is the kingdom. That we just usher in God's kingdom and, and the Christian mission is to just be good people in society, make society... No. God's judgment is still coming on the fallen world. At the same time, just because God's judgment is coming doesn't mean that we're not seeking the shalom of the society in which we're in. Are you tracking with me? That was just like a little aside there. That was kind of like an asterisk footnote getting back to the good news here in verse 10. Verse 10, he says, seven years, Babylon's going to be done, and I'm going to fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. Why? Based on what? What's the foundation for that hope? Well, look at verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now this is, by the way, the most misused verse in all of the Bible. Alright, you can drive through the Bible Belt and find this on little placards to put up on your, on your wall. You can find this all over the place. Misused. This is not about your personal success. It's not about it doesn't actually say, for I know the plans you have for yourself, which I'm about to bring about. <laughs> it doesn't say that, does it? No. As a matter of fact, you is plural there. So first we can say that he's talking to the people as a whole, not to just simply an individual, as if you're going to succeed and somebody else is not. He's talking to the people as a whole, and he's certainly not talking about the physical blessings of the kingdom. Why? It's because this is given at the beginning of 70 years, and many of them will be dead before they see the fulfillment of this. Like, if this is about physical blessings, then you can't make sense of suffering for 70 years in exile, right? 
No, the suffering continues. This sees beyond this life. This sees beyond the suffering of the world. He says, I have plans for you as a people. Plans for your shalom, not for evil. To give you a future and to give you a hope. Even though in this life, suffering will remain. Some of the challenges that you have will go away and you'll get other challenges. Eventually, unless the Lord comes back, we will all have a challenge that will kill us. <laughs> One day. Suffering will continue. I think of our sister Eunice. You know, her body's suffering. Well, her, her suffering may continue in this life. But God's not done. The suffering, the physical challenges that you have, that's not the end of the story. Don't you see? Even your death is not the end of the story. He's not done. You, you've made a mess of your life. You made some mistakes, and you're not where you could be, theoretically. Like, if you could do your life over again, you would go some different paths, and you would realize that I have more potential than I've achieved, and I would reach my full potential if I could do my life over again. Well, of course, who wouldn't? But you've made some mistakes. Right now, right here, is where you are. But family, God's not done. He's still got plans for you. And by the way, all things, according to Romans 8, 28, work together for what? For your good. You, you might have some challenges with, with, with children. You might have a kid that you don't, you don't even know personally. And that, that, that just wrecks you as you think about it. Family, God's not done. You might have had a marriage that fell apart and you would do things differently, but God is not done with you. The point here is God has not abandoned us. He's not abandoned us and He will use even the brokenness, even the challenges of our life for His purposes. We have a covenant that has been given to us by Christ, the Last Supper. Jesus passed the elements to his disciples, and he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. This is a covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ, not just for the Jews, but for all people who come into it, for the whole global family of God. And in this covenant, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, we have all the promises of God and they find their yes in Christ Jesus. Here in Jeremiah, God is sustaining for himself a remnant, and when the time is right, he's going to bring them back to the land. His purposes have not failed, even though there's judgment. God is faithful even in the midst of suffering, and in our suffering, in our grief, in our guilt, God is still faithful. And you might say, but I've messed up. 
I've really messed up. You know, Brandon Petrovsky, a couple years ago, really encouraged me. I was, I was uh, dealing with some anxiety, and I, I remember telling Brandon, we were meeting early in the morning, I remember telling Brandon, I said, you know, I don't, it's not that I don't trust God, I don't trust myself. And I remember Brandon, I don't even know if you remember telling me this, brother, but it was so good. Brandon said, you know, if this whole, like, sovereignty of God thing is right, <laughs> then even the mistakes you make are ultimately for his purposes and for your good. And that stuck with me. Even the mistakes you make are ultimately for his purposes and for your good. Meaning, yeah, you've made some mistakes. And I've had, just recently, I, someone confessed to me, like, I've messed up and I have so much guilt and I, I'm just dealing with so much. Do you realize that God is not done? Do you realize that you right now are in the place that God has brought you and his purposes will be fulfilled? Friends, where sin runs deep, his grace is found. And where his grace is found, that's where you are. And where you are, we are free. Because of God's grace, we are free. And one day we will be free. There is nothing that Satan can throw your way that will ruin the purposes of God in your life. Man, uh, you, you could probably even think back to times in your life where you messed up big time and God brought something good out of it. Do you realize that God can even use Satan as a tool to bring about his purposes and his good in your life? Do you realize that even though God has used Babylon to bring Israel out of the land, God is going to take them back because he's not done? Do you know the freedom in Jesus Christ? Turn to him. Cling to him. Seek him with your whole heart. And that's how this passage, this letter to the exiles wraps up. He says in verse 12, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with your whole heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this passage of hope that we have. That even in the midst of exile for your people Israel, that your promises did not fail them. That you were still faithful even when they were unfaithful. God, I pray that that will be true for us as well, as we are people of this new covenant, that we will lean into Christ, that we will see Christ, cling to him, and know that you will never throw your hands up with us and say, I'm done. But your work will be finished in our lives. God, I pray with that encouragement, with that gospel insight that we will be people who settle down in, in the place that you've planted us, and that we will seek the shalom of those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.